it is good to see you, friends, brothers, sisters, uh, here and, and across Victoria. Um, today is, a, of course, a very special day in the West. It's the day before All Saints, otherwise known as All Hallows' Eve or Halloween. In the Orthodox Church, it's known as the 31st of October. It's not really a day for us, but it is a special day. It is a special day because it's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day, and so we gather in spirit if not in physical presence, but hopefully more and more in communion with each other. And so I am so glad to be with you on this special 31st of October. The readings today are both incredibly rich, and I am very tempted to talk about the Apostle Paul and his mystical journey to the third heaven. And I'm very uncomfortable talking about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. So I'm going to talk about the rich man and Lazarus because it makes me uncomfortable, and I think it probably should make me uncomfortable, and I'm going to let you share my discomfort. Um, So apologies in advance. I'm going to divide this sermon into three parts. The first part, we're going to call the rules of the game of life. And the second part, we're going to call order restored. And the third part, we're going to call repentance. And this is going to take us through the parable. So if you're at home and you have the, uh, the Bible uh, open to Luke 16, verses uh, 19 to 31, you can follow along. Otherwise, I'll try and take you through it as best I can. So it starts off with a rich man who has no name and Lazarus, a poor beggar who wishes only to be fed with the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table and whose sores are licked by dogs. One of these guys has won at the game of life. And this is the rich man. It's not Lazarus. I don't know if you played the game of life. It was popular back in the day, especially in the States. You had a little car, and you put figures in it as you got married and had kids and made money. And the point of the game was to make money, because at the end of the game, it didn't matter if you had like six kids or two or what. What mattered is if you discovered uranium and had made like a million dollars. And you knew who won because they had money. If you didn't play that game, maybe you played Monopoly. My daughter likes to play Monopoly because she absolutely wipes the floor with me at it. She always has all the money, and I always die in the gutter. She wins at the game. And I talk about the rules of the game of life because the rules of those board games are actually the rules that I think a lot of us take for granted. They're the rules of how to get ahead, about how to take care of oneself, whether at the expense of others or simply by ignoring them. There are the rules of acquiring and keeping wealth, status, power, all the markers of success in this world. And by world, I mean what St. Paul meant. Not the nature, not the earth, not God's created order, but the group of desires, attachments, values, expectations, and norms that privilege selfishness. And so these are the rules of the game of life. And Lazarus and the rich man have unfortunately both been playing. And, well, as I said, the rich man won. Wealthy, banqueting, probably had lots of friends. He's got five brothers, doing all right. And Lazarus has his sores licked by dogs while he starves to death. Not doing so great. And the rules of the game of life define the first part of the parable. And in fact, they continue all the way up to when both of these men die. It says Lazarus dies and goes to Abraham's bosom. We'll come back to that. But the rich man dies and is buried. You see, Lazarus probably wasn't even buried. He was probably tossed into a pit without a funeral. 
pauper funerals continued well into the 20th century in, in the UK, for example. And they are a nightmare of depersonalization, of someone so unvalued and uncared for that they don't get a funeral. The rich man probably had a nice funeral. I expect a lot of people came and said very good things about him. The eulogies were undoubtedly very touching. So even up to that point, the rules of the game of life have decided who is winning and who is losing, but then they die. Oops. Now that brings us to the second part, order restored. Because when they die, the tables get turned, or as a battle rapper would say, the script gets flipped. You probably don't listen to a lot of battle rap, and you probably shouldn't, but they do say that. You flip the script. You turn it around. What someone had taken for granted, you turn on its head and show that it was actually the reverse of that. And sure enough, what happens when they die after the funerals or the lack thereof? Well, the rich man, who had won, who had done everything right by the standards of this world, is in torment. And the poor man, the man who had not done anything right by the standards of this world, is there with Abraham. And when order is restored, it means that our expectations are turned on their head. And that tells us how not only artificial the rules of the game of life are, the rules of this world are, but how absolutely contrary they are to God's created order. What God wants is summed up, at least as regards this, is summed up so beautifully in a statement of St. Basil the Great. He said, God ordained that we have need of one another. We need each other. We care for each other. The game of life that privileges myself, me, getting ahead, is opposite to that. And so the rich man finds out that he had not been winning so much. In fact, he finds out he'd been doing the opposite of what he ought to have been. Although he doesn't get it, does he? When he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. I'm in torment here. That poor guy will probably help. He's a servant, right? That's what he should do. He should serve me. I'm rich. And Abraham's like, what? No, no, he can't go to you. No one's going to serve you anymore. You had your good things. See, all that's done. All that's gone. You know, the old cliche, you can't take it with you. All the things that you had amassed, rich man, are gone, and none of them are going to help you. And Lazarus is not your servant. Those categories that you had set up where you were better and he was worse, where you deserved more and he deserved less, that's all done with. See, the problem with the rich man is not that he was a particularly sinful person. We don't know anything about him except for one thing. He was rich. Apparently, the problem with him was that he was rich. We don't know anything about Lazarus. Was he a good man? Was he a kind man? have no idea. We know that he was poor and that he suffered. See, the point is that there is something wrong with these categories. And I'm going to make a kind of bold statement here, so forgive me now. Is there something wrong with being rich in the gospel? Yes. There's a reason why when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He says, well, keep the law. He's like, I've done that. He's like, oh, great. You've got to do just one more thing. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, come follow me. And the rich young ruler, it says, was very sad, for he had great wealth. Off he goes, not to follow Christ. See, the problem with being rich isn't being rich. The problem is the, the only way one becomes rich is by acquiring and keeping. 
And the only way that can really be successful is if we live a life defined by values and uh, habits of acquiring and keeping, becoming the sort of person who can hold on to things. And so the problem with the rich man is that he had become the sort of person who acquired for himself and for whom others had become invisible. Lazarus, who sat at his gate, was apparently not invited in to eat at the rich man's table. The problem is that he had become someone who could acquire for himself and not see others. And so it's no wonder that elsewhere in the gospel, Jesus famously says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's always the fun interpretation. It's, there's a gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye, and a camel has to kind of get that. No, there's no gate that never really existed. Jesus is saying the only way is to get a camel through a needle. And the only way you get a camel through a needle, as I understand it, is to liquefy the camel. And camels don't like being liquefied. It doesn't work. A camel is not the sort of thing that can go through a needle. The person who has become defined by habits of acquisition and keeping and in the other invisibility of others cannot enter the kingdom of heaven because they can't even see the kingdom of heaven. The rich man there in torment can't even see how things have been changed. He still thinks Lazarus should serve him. So there's a problem with becoming that sort of person because it's not simply having money, it's becoming the sort of person that thinks that's what matters. A person who thinks that the rules of the game of life are the real rules. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Because there's the other side of order being restored, which is that Lazarus is comforted. That he is there, it says, in Abraham's bosom. I think what it must mean is that uh, Abraham is reclining and Lazarus is laying on his chest. Uh, as the beloved disciple does at the, at the Last Supper in the Gospel of John, he reclines on Jesus' bosom. He is there being held like a child. Because he is Abraham's child. See, in life, he was ignored. He was excluded, but in death, in the restoration of things. Because in this parable, the state of death is, a, is an image of the judgment of Christ. The man who was not cared for is. And we are told what he truly was. A child of Abraham, a child of God. This is at the heart of things. Because much of what happens, or much of what the world foists on us, are ways not only of privileging ourselves, of privileging selfishness, but of making sure that we have all the excuses necessary to ignore everyone else in that pursuit. That we divide off who is the deserving poor and who are the undeserving poor. Who's got Centerlink and who abuses Centerlink? Is that guy on the street just going to drink if I give him money? All the ways to say, oh, not them, not my problem. But in the end, what's revealed about Lazarus is not that he was a good person, that he did this or that, or that he persisted in prayer. Maybe he did, who knows? What mattered was that he was a child of God. And that had been ignored in life. But in God's judgment, that is what matters. All the categories that we put on other people that create excuses not to help or to ignore are thrown away in the judgment of God. And what matters is that beneath all of that, you, me, all of us, we are children of God made in his image and deserving of his love and of each other's love. 
And so the poor man is revealed to be every bit as important as the rich man. And we know he's important because of all the characters and all the parables that Jesus tells, only one person has a name. Lazarus. He has a name to remind us that he mattered. The rich man doesn't have a name. He's just the rich man. Oh, I'm sure in life he had a very famous name, the sort of name that people spoke of in hushed tones, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk. But in death, he's just a rich man. The man on the street whose name I don't know, he has a name. God knows it. I don't know it. That's my fault, not God's. And so the rich man begins to understand. He says, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I've made a huge mistake. But I've got five brothers. It's not too late for them. They're not dead yet. They can, they can change. Send Lazarus again. I mean, it's like, oh my gosh, are you not getting it? Lazarus is not your servant. He's not, not going to send Lazarus. But he asks, and Abraham goes, no, no, that's not how it works. See, your brothers have something. They don't need Lazarus. They have Moses and the prophets. What does that mean? It means they've got the law. And they've got the prophets who came to remind people of the law. And in the law, it's pretty darn clear. You do not consume the portion of the widow or the orphan. You do not hold people enslaved. I mean, the law allowed for slavery, but they had to be freed. Fields had to lie fallow every seven years. You can't get very rich if you have a reset every seven years. Makes it tough. The law was intended to create a society that was not divided by classes of rich and poor, of uh, nobility and common. There are no classes in Israelite society like that. It is the most egalitarian law that the ancient world ever knew. And when the prophets came, and people were ignoring this, the prophets came and didn't say, ah, oh, it's okay to be rich, you're doing all right, just make sure you give some at the temple. They said, no, woe to you rich who link field to field, who consume the widow's and the orphan's portion. Woe to you. They came and said, no, you're not getting it. The rules of the game of life that you're trying to play by, those are not God's rules. God's rules in the law are to bring us together, not to make one win and one lose, one rich and one poor. They are to unite us, to remind us that we have need of one another. And so Abraham says, you've got the law and the prophets. I think your brothers should know what to do. And he says, well, no, no, someone comes from the dead. He's like, oh, right, yes, someone comes from the dead. Well, no, because if they didn't listen to Moses, and they didn't listen to Isaiah, they didn't listen to the people that they claim to say that God sent them to tell them how to live, well, I don't think they're going to care too much if someone shows up and goes, hey, I'm Lazarus, here to tell you all, to tell you all. They should know. They are without excuse. We are without excuse because, see, we have not only the law and the prophets, but we have the gospel. And the gospel gives us the key. Of course it gives us the key. It's the gospel. So what's the key? Well, the key is in the word that the rich man says but doesn't seem to understand. The key is in the word repentance. When someone comes to Jesus and says, what should I do? He says, well, What's in the law? How do you read it? He says, well, first, love the Lord your God with all your strength and all your mind. I'm sorry, with all your mind and all your heart and all your strength and all your soul. Two, 
Love your neighbor as yourself. And they say the second commandment is like unto the first. That is, as important as it is to love God with all our being, it is equally important to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, in the game of life, we love ourselves and not our neighbor. In God's order, we love our neighbor exactly as much as we love ourselves. And that's only possible because God loves us and we are taught to love by God. Because it's very hard to love our neighbor as ourselves. And yet, what's required is this process of transformation that goes under the name repentance. That I talked earlier about, well, it's a problem in the Gospels to be rich because one has become the sort of person who is good at acquiring and keeping. Well, repentance is about becoming the sort of person who is ready to be in the kingdom of heaven, who is ready to love their neighbor as themselves. I find that very, very challenging, especially when I'm reminded in the parable of the Good Samaritan who my neighbor is. It's people I don't like or people I'm not necessarily told to care about. It's not just the people that, I'm, that we're all taught to care about. You know, family members or friends. We all know we're supposed to like our family and our friends, even if it's sometimes hard to like our family. We know we should try. But the people that we barely know or the people that we genuinely just don't get along with. Those are our neighbors. And so to learn to love our neighbors as ourselves requires a process of habituation, every bit as demanding as the career that could make us wealthy, or powerful, or famous, or whatever it might be. And so this brings me to that third part of the sermon, repentance. Because, thank God, most of us probably aren't the very rich or the very poor. We're kind of in the middle somewhere somewhere on that spectrum between those two poles. We are in the process of becoming one sort of person or another. We're in the process of becoming the sort of person that looks out and sees their neighbor and says, I want to help you. Or the sort of person who looks out and sees possibilities for personal gain. But we're in the process of becoming. And repentance is about interrupting and shifting that process of becoming from the sort of person who looks out and sees possibilities for gain to the person who sees their neighbor. And so, of course, you might say, well, I mean, what are we supposed to do? Just get rid of everything and go begging? And, and well, yeah, I mean, that actually is kind of the point. Anthony the Great is in church one day going, I wonder what it was like for those apostles to just follow Jesus. And what does he hear? Sell all you have, give to the poor, and follow me. And Anthony the Great goes, oh, okay, so he does. And later that week, he's living in tombs because he's given away everything he owned. That's pretty extreme stuff. St. Maria of Paris, reasonably well-off in background, chose to turn her apartment into a soup kitchen for sex workers and alcoholics, whom she would meet at brothels and bars. It's pretty extreme stuff. Metropolitan Callistos Ware related a story once that is absolutely one of my favorite. I've, just, I've got to include this, so forgive me, but I've got to include it. He was in Jerusalem on a tour, and he was being shown around to see the great and the good, the, the beautiful churches, uh, the other bishops, and, and his guide says, oh no, uh, we've got to go meet someone, and takes him off to the side, and there's this fellow, uh, a man, uh, an African man, who's a monk in rags. I'm, we're talking like, you know, monks don't, aren't known for their fashion sense in the first place. This guy is really not looking too great. He's got a beggar's bull in front of him, and he's sitting there. 
And Metropolitan Callistos is like, I don't know why I'm supposed to meet this guy, but okay, all right, I'll do it. And his guide says, this is Metropolitan Callistos, where he went to Magdalen College, Oxford. And the, the beggar looks up and goes, ah, how is old Balliol these days? See, he was the son of a finance minister in an African nation, a man of great wealth, educated at Oxford, groomed to be a leader of people. And he had realized that that was not going to work. So he had cast it all off to literally become a beggar in Jerusalem where he could pray and live on the grace of God. That's extreme stuff. But then the lives of the saints are filled with extreme stuff. Lives that when we look at them, we go, I'm not sure I can do that. And actually the fact is, the reason I say this is because I look at them and I think, I don't think I can do that. So the one glimmer of hope I suppose I have to offer in all of this very demanding world of the gospel is that for most of us, it's not the extreme renunciation. It's going to be living in a certain tension of thinking, I need to rely more on God and less on myself. I need to give rather than take. I need to see my neighbor rather than ignore them. But I may not be ready to take that extreme step. But I know I'm not ready. And that knowledge is a source of humility. And that can be useful too. Because the other problem, of course, with becoming the great and the good of this world is pride. Thinking that we did it. Ah, self-made man. No such thing. But pride says, I made myself. I did it. I made it. St. John Climacus says, you can take credit for everything you did before you were born. After that, it's kind of God's giving. It's not you. And so living in the tension of saying, I know I should, I should be more like the saints, but I don't think I can do it. That tension can be useful because it makes us humble. It reminds us that we're not there yet. That our process of becoming may be humbler. That maybe we're doing little things like trying to buy fair trade. Not pass the person on the street. Maybe give them money. Maybe get them a sandwich. Maybe just take that moment and instead of walking by, go, oh, nope. Here, too, is the image of God. Here, too, is Christ. I best stop. Or maybe it's having less, a bit less. Maybe it's just remembering that this is not about what I can get for me. That's my struggle, at least, with it. And that's hard enough. But I think that's what repentance looks like. It's that ongoing process of remembering I'm not there yet, but I know where I need to be going and where I need to be going isn't to try and win at the game of life. It's trying to become a moment of God's created order. The order that says we need each other and we care for each other. That we love each other as much as ourselves, as much as God has loved us. And the only way we can do that is as Paul was reminded. So we'll get the epistle a little bit. As Paul was reminded, my grace is sufficient for you. When Paul's like, hey, I got this. God's like, no, you don't. Thorn in the side. Whatever that was. And Paul goes, could I not have this? God's like, no, you're going to have that because it's not you. It's me. But that's okay. So our repentance, that process of letting go, of becoming the sort of person who sees our neighbor is also a process of letting God work on us in little ways, in little habits that hopefully will build us toward people fit for the kingdom of heaven, for Abraham's bosom, for delight with one another. And that is what I want to encourage you in this week as we go forth into the world. That we bring the communion 
of God to our neighbors. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.